0: Hello, everyone. I used to say good evening, but I have to stop myself because there are many people watching that are, for them it's morning or afternoon or who knows when, so I won't say that. But welcome to wherever you are, and those, of course, here, physical souls and bodies. And we are going to dedicate this uh, class to uh, Rivka Bat Lea for a complete refur shlema, complete healing by uh, her husband Seymour, sitting right here, and Alan and uh, friends and family. And may these words um, serve us all well in bringing healing to Rufka bat but healing to everyone in this ailing world. <clears throat> and healing on so many different levels. There's uh, physical healing, there's spiritual, psychological, emotional, which is so much the theme of this uh, this program or this class. So we'll be talking about how to uh, remain calm in uh, amidst stress, the secret to serenity. Um, so you look around, you see people in stressful situations. Some people um, literally get overwhelmed and unhinged, freak out, whatever word you want to use for it. And others, in the same type of stressful situation, can remain composed and... Um, And collected. So, what really distinguishes one person from another? Is it something that comes from nurture or nature, something in our education, or something that the way we're wired? Maybe some of us are just wired with a calm gene, so to speak, and others are not. And of course, is there anything we can do, any methods, any approaches that we can use or do that can help us develop uh, skills? To be able to maintain a type of balance and equilibrium, even dealing with very with a lot of anxiety or stressful situations, that's going to be the discussion and the theme of this evening. This evening, this uh, discussion, I should say, and uh, and of course there are many different ways to approach it. And I think all of us, no matter who we are, whether we're in a very extreme, acute situations of stress or more milder forms, everybody can use uh, better tools. In dealing with these situations, you know, some people, as I said, when things are are a lot of pressure, um, it brings the best out of them, and for other people, it brings the worst out of them. So I don't know where you fit in, but you can be uh, probably know yourself well enough to know which way you react. So the point here is going to be to try to develop and understand on deeper the deeper roots and causes for um, uh, stress in general and how we react to stress. And, of course, the goal of that is not just to understand it, but to be able to then look inside ourselves and see whether we can actually develop deeper resources, deeper strengths in dealing with these situations. Now, Of course, um, it's always critical to know and study whenever you want to develop any type of tools in life. You always want to look at models that are, uh, are the most perfect models, but at least the best, healthiest models. What I find very often is even though we're in situations that are challenging, whatever challenge it may be, whether you're dealing with different fears or insecurities or um, <clears throat> internal ones um, or uh, based on things we grew up based on experiences, trauma or abuse in our childhood, whatever it may be, there's one thing the issues that we have to deal with. There's another that we often make a lot of mistakes in how we deal with it. In other words, it's one thing if you can isolate the problem and then find a healthy way of intervening. What's far worse is that when you not only don't isolate the problem, but you create more problems by not knowing how to address it, which is like the collateral damage that comes. It's like, you know, just use a simple example. You may, so God forbid, begins with a small little infection. So it's one thing, you go to a doctor, you nip it in the bud, and you deal with it. Another is either you ignore it, or worse, you try to um, deal with it in the wrong way. And instead of becoming a small infection, it starts spreading. And not just spreading, it can start becoming uncontrollable. Like anything, like a small little fire begins as a spark. But if handled immediately in the right way, you can uh, eliminate the issue. But most problems are the ones that happen on the second bounce and the third bounce. Either we ignore it or we do things that are unhealthy in trying to deal with the situation. So... It's interesting because you'd think, you'd think it would be so simple. Okay, you know, bad things happen. We're all going to have challenges. And you think, okay, once you have a challenge, fine. So the next step is to uh, do what you've got to do. And most problems begin because we don't do what we have to do. That is something completely in our control. Now, of course, it's not, uh, it's not unjustified because the fact of the matter is the reason most of us don't do what we need to do is because part of the problem is it blinds us from doing what's right. Either our pride or our subjectivity or our prejudices and biases become uh, affected and shaped by what has happened to us. So, for example, just to use a a simple example, someone insults you at work. Someone says something to you that's derogatory. So, different ways to react. You can react immediately, respond tit for tat in kind by uh, insulting them in turn or in some other way getting even with them. Or you can uh, be quiet and, uh, and think about it and, and uh, plan properly what to do, either to ignore it, but not react impulsively. What usually happens, we do react impulsively because the emotional insult and the humiliation, especially if it's in front of others, doesn't let you just think, uh, reflect, reflect objectively, so you react immediately. And that may be a mistake because your quick reaction may not be the right reaction. It may not be, end up being good for you, even though you may feel good for the moment that you defended yourself, but it may not be a long-term solution. But the reason for that is because the insult did affect us emotionally, and we are therefore react. Of course, the wise person will say, one second, let me think about this, you know, and, uh, and then reflect. I could always come back and with a rejoinder and do something about it, or I can determine maybe the person may have misunderstood something, or maybe I misunderstood I mean, these are just one example. There's hundreds every day where we react to things based on our emotional moment, the bad mood, or you may be subjective, or you may be prejudiced, or you just, uh, whatever, it may be are particularly fragile. And that reaction could be worse than the initial problem. And that's where we obviously have to put a lot of focus on, because it's one thing if you're able to, as I said, contain it and nip it in the bud and solve it at the root. It's another once it begins to spread. Now the sad fact is that most of our uh, early childhood traumas and experiences in our homes, which has such impact on the impressionable child that each one of us is at that age, does not uh, allow us, because as children we don't have the tools to compensate and to counter the punches that we receive in life. Someone, let's say, is bullied at school, or someone in some way is mistreated by a parent or by a sibling, uh, whether it's a mild form of abuse or a more extreme form, a child is not equipped. A child is uh, is meant to be. A child expects, and, and and rightfully so, to receive love and nurturing and validation, and, and does not have the sophisticated tool chest to be able to know how to deal with an unhealthy situation, because it turns to its parents for everything. So what happens is, the whatever that the the effects. And whatever the, the, the wounds that we incur in our childhood, by the time we grow into adults and we can begin to deal with it, now it's already embedded in our systems. So I, you know, not to, I use an extreme example simply to make the point. If, for example, a child comes home from school, and day after day, week after week, they are berated for not having good enough marks or not uh, living up to a father or mother's expectations, and what do you think happens after a while? It's a one-time thing. It's a one-time thing. We all have a certain amount of resilience. But if it's constant, constant critique, this child is going to start thinking of themselves as I'm not worthy because my parents who would love me so much and who, I, who are to me like God are constantly telling me how inadequate I am. So the child begins to assimilate that self-perception. And of course, if, if someone was able to stop it right there and then, it's one thing. But then five years pass, 10 years pass, 20 years pass. This child is now growing into adult, is going out on a date, or is looking to have other normal adult relationships. And this haunts the child, not even in a conscious way. Because what do you think a child does? They adjust. You know, when you've been punched enough times, you begin to adjust, you begin to protect yourself, you begin to shift and change your attitudes. Especially if you feel you're inadequate, you start second-guessing yourself. so You lose self-confidence. And there's a certain fearfulness now the child may never even know that it came from there because the child doesn't connect the dots. I'm just using a classic example simply to make the point. Obviously this can be applied to thousands of different situations. But in this case, just to use this as a case study, what you have happening, the child has made all kinds of adjustments to protect itself from these hurtful experiences that by the time the child's an adult, there's a whole new series of collateral damage, so to speak, where the child may be the adult now. Maybe someone has a very high, very sophisticated defense mechanisms, a very thick uh, um, uh, veil of armor that protects itself from others, and very difficult to be vulnerable because you don't even know who's going to hurt you next because the child expects to be criticized and hurt. This is, again, a classic, and it's, I'm not, no means trying to gener- be generic or overgeneralize, but just to make the point, as I said. So now what you're dealing with is not the original issue. You're now dealing with a whole, a whole slew of, of um, secondary problems that even the tools of this, who was once a child, this wounded child as an adult, are also distorted because the tools were all based on an unhealthy situation. So now the child can't even come. This adult can no longer, when dealing with a healthy relationship, meet somebody, let's say, that is healthy. They don't know whether they trust themselves or not trust themselves. And on and on. Everybody has a version of this in their own lives. Issues of trust and commitment, of not being wanted to be hurt. And then especially if you do get hurt again, as an adult, then it just confirms, you see, I shouldn't have let my guard down. So then your guard goes up even higher and you develop another layer of defenses. I'm sure you can recognize some of this in yourself. Obviously, as I said, I used a more extreme example. There's even worse than what I've said. I just didn't want to go into the full nightmare scenario. And there's, of course, milder forms, and every one of us has something to deal with. The question is the extent of it. The point I'm making here to sum up is that there's a, there's a, there's a uh, wound, and there's what we do to heal that wound. And what we do often causes more problems, more wounds than the original wound. And the same thing is when we're dealing with stress and anxiety and all difficult situations. You know, you cannot, if you look at the difference between, let's say, a tree that remains standing after a heavy storm in the woods. And the trees that fall and and, uh, get destroyed. Or a ship at sea, the ship that is able to survive, again, a storm. And the ships that don't survive, capsize. What is the difference between them? It's not the storm that defines the ship. It's before the storm began, one ship was built properly. One tree has the proper deep roots. The storm exposes, in calm weather... You can see the difference. You see two trees standing. You don't know the difference between this tree and that tree. They both seem strong, but the storm strikes. You suddenly see the difference. You suddenly see, um, you suddenly see that one tree remains standing. So you know it has to have deep roots, and is able to withstand. It has the the defenses necessary to withstand the storm. And another tree did not have those roots. So we don't want to wait till the storm strikes before we build up our resources which is one of the fascinating lessons from the biblical story of Joseph. I always thought about it. And, um, you know, everyone knows the story with Joseph. The story goes that Pharaoh has a dream, two dreams that Joseph interprets as being seven years of famine, which will be followed by, I'm sorry, seven years of famine, which would be preceded by seven years of plenty. And uh, that was with the dream. And then Joseph advises Pharaoh Um, that he should stockpile. While there's an abundance of grain, they should stockpile Egypt, and they'll have enough when the seven years of famine strike. They said, genius, what a smart Jew. And immediately appointed him as being viceroy, second in command to Pharaoh himself, because he came up with this brilliant idea. You think of it ostensibly, it seems weird and strange, like what's, what's so brilliant about that? What's, that you know there's going to be a famine. Now you know there's abundance. So what's a big thing. You save. It's called basically saving up for times, when, for times of, uh, of uh, when the dry season, so to speak. But if you think about it, the brilliance was not the idea. The brilliance was, main, was uh, execution. Everybody, everybody never thinks in terms of what's going to be tomorrow. You say, oh, tomorrow, come, I'll deal with it. Famine maybe won't be so bad. Right now you live in the moment. That's why they have all these, impo- all these vehicles called force savings. Automatic uh, withdrawals. Why? Why can't you just say, you know, every month, on the first of the month, I'm going to pay- make my payment. Because most of us don't. We start saying this month's a little difficult. Next month I'll pay twice, double. Or three, to three months, three times. And you start creating all kinds of play-, play games with yourself, and we don't end up doing it. Having actual consistency. And understanding the importance of consistency is not the same thing. What Joseph's brilliance was that he actually implemented. That as difficult as it was, he rationed rationed off the grain even in the when there was complete plenty and abundance. They never say, Why are you rationing? Because one day will come, it won't be that way. And they'll say, Maybe the dream wasn't exactly that way, maybe it won't be so bad. Nobody implemented. And that's what turned Egypt into a superpower. So it's one thing to know, another is to act. It's one thing to know that you should have a strong tree in your life, meaning you should be a strong tree. You should build a strong ship, not wait for a storm. But how many of us do that? We say things are good, good times now. Good times, you know, psychologically, emotionally, I feel confident, I feel strong. Why, Why should I be worried about the times that may not be that, that may be more challenging? But that's what defines the difference between the strong trees and the weak trees, the strong ships and the weak ships. So when you say that some people deal with stress differently than others, yes, maybe some wiring involved, and I'll talk about that soon, but there's a lot of it comp- very much dependent on us, how we prepare in calmer times. Very hard in the middle of a storm, when, when you have 90, 90 miles per hour winds blowing, and all else, havoc, so they say, oh, you know what, we better uh, b- build, build strong roots. It doesn't work that way. Ships are strong before the storm strikes. And that's the same thing with our psychological well-being. So if you were to evaluate yourself, not when there's pressure and stress and anxiety and difficulties, you know, in a calm time, do you know what you're made of? Most of us have no clue. It's when there are difficult times, then we suddenly are subject to these, the winds of extreme change, when suddenly we either realize that we have a lot more going for us, like they say, that the oil, the, the olive produces oil when it's pressured. Same thing is uh, the expression used um, Eleanor Roosevelt or whoever said it about women that you don't know how strong a woman is. She's like a, that a woman's like a tea bag. You don't know how strong she is until you put her into hot water. Um, which, I mean, maybe an insult to men, but uh, that's what they say about women, more power in that sense. Um, but in general When there's pressure, you suddenly see things about yourself you did not know. So it's hard to evaluate when things are going calm. You know, what you really have, what are you made of? So obviously you need to understand that as well and not wait when things are very difficult. Once the difficulty strikes in a person's life, it's very difficult to go ahead and say, "Okay, let's build resources right now. I'm not suggesting nothing can be done, but it's a lot more difficult. So really a discussion of this nature, how to find how to um, uh, what's the expression what do we say how to uh, maintain, calm. maintain calm in doing stress really has to be addressed in two ways: one, what do you do when you 're ready in that situation, and more importantly, what do you do to preempt that situation so when it comes you 're well armed and you 're well um, resourced so I will talk from both angles obviously i 'm going to talk the first. The second point first, which is how do you prepare? Because that's obviously the best of all scenarios. So to do that, we need to go back a little, as I said before, to put the microscope and let's analyze and evaluate a bit what are the dynamics that go on in the human psyche when uh, stress strikes. And all forms of stress. This can be from a death to a loss of a job, or to some other trauma in life, some transition, something that's serious. Or it can be a stress that's uh, more of an internal stress of uh, internal anxieties over different things in life, uh, sometimes traceable to childhood traumas and abuse or other forms of dysfunctionality. So I'm really covering, I think, as much as I can in the spectrum. Obviously, I'm not discussing things on a clinical level that may need medical intervention, as in medication or therapy or other forms. am trying to talk about it, complementing that or situations that we have more control over and we do not need some other substance or, or, or other help from outside. It's always important to have a good objective friend that you can lean on and you can speak to. But in addition to that, I'm focusing mostly what we can ourselves personally do. So before you do anything, you have to know what you're made of. When, God forbid, somebody, let's say, rush to an emergency room in the hospital, and uh, no one should know of this, but let's say there's bleeding, internal bleeding or some form of bleeding. So the first thing a doctor does, the emergency doctor will do, is diagnose, assess. You need to immediately know. I mean, obviously, the first thing they'll do is stop the bleeding, obviously. But the first thing, you need to know where it's coming from. And you need a trained person to know where it's coming from. Because, as I said before, if it's not a trained person, you could end up doing things that can cause more damage. That's why it's very important when you have an emergency victim to know exactly not to move the person, when to move, how to move, because you can cause more problems if you don't know what you're doing. So the same thing is psychologically. If a person is in a situation, in any given situation, you need to know what are we made of? Where is this coming from? Because if you do the wrong type of intervention or you don't do any, you can cause more problems than solve. So that's why it's so critical to understand or use the expression, one of the expressions in... in the the mystical teachings, Hasidic teachings, Jewish psychology you can call it, is that, in Hebrew, awareness of a problem is half the cure. So if there's a problem and you don't know what the problem is, that itself is part of the problem. Awareness of the problem. So the key thing is on awareness, self-awareness, and awareness, what are we dealing with here? So let's analyze the anatomy of stress, okay? Now we know what it feels like feels very un, um, uncomfortable, to put it mildly. It feels extremely disorienting, demoralizing, uh, can create panic. Stress is a very challenging thing. You know, because you're let's say in a very calm environment, everything is going smoothly, and then something happens, unexpected, something you would n- completely not prepare for, and it throws you. Everybody can be overwhelmed by a situation. Of course, we're going to be talking about what you can do, and that's why you'll find the difference between different people reacting. But it's a natural thing if you're th- suddenly subject to a scenario that you did not expect. You know, you come home, you see your whole house is over- upside down. I mean, just use a God forbid, a fire breaks out somewhere or anything of that nature is going to create stress because you're not ready for it. You don't know what's happening and you're not prepared what, what, to, what to do next. So a trained person is going to know how to go through step one, step two, step three, and let's figure out what to do quickly. An untrained person will panic, and that panic could create even more problems. You know, you see a drowning victim, for example, and they're thrashing about, so a trained lifeguard knows how to go over to that drowning victim and knows how to grab them, because if you go regularly, they'll, they'll pull you down. And a person in that desperate state is very strong. They'll pull down anyone, even those coming to save them. Why? Because they're so desperate they can't think straight. So a good lifeguard will go from behind, grab the person that they can that they can't, they can't um, attack the person who's coming to save them. Now you would say, it doesn't sound logical. Here's a person coming to save you. Yeah, but drowning is not logical. You lose your logic. You're not thinking straight because you're desperate. And especially if it gets really situation, you feel completely panicky. So you are in a place where you cannot really know how to approach it. Okay, so what is the dynamics of the stress? Dynamics of the stress is the following. We're all created, I'm talking now healthy children born with um, normal skills and tools. We're all born with tools to be able to survive. For example, even newborn children, without any conscious effort, cry when they're hungry, thirsty, in pain, uncomfortable if they didn't cry no one would know there's a problem so that's how God created that's how we are created without any effort the human body has its survival instinct and it will cry out when there's a problem now when the child is older they can speak fine but the same bodily instincts exist even in adult life for example you put your hand too close to fire that your body has nerves and is going to sense warmth and heat and you'll pull away. Or other things that are the body has its instincts that it senses. This is our whole nervous system. It senses, it senses pain or it senses uh, danger and will stay away. So that preempts or prevents problems. Because let's say, for God forbid, you didn't feel it was fire and you put your hand in it, then suddenly you get burned. Or the fire surprised you. You walked into a room or something, and there was a, a you know flash fire or something. Then you weren't ready for it. So the so the human body has its natural instincts, and of course, as we grow older, we also develop and we um, we uh, we learn from experience things that maybe our natural instinct would not be there. Like you know, a child may cross the street on their own. The adult tells the child, "You don't cross the street. You don't walk alone in the street. I, you hold my hand." At some point, we develop that knowing, even though we may never have seen a car, God forbid, hit someone, but we know that we come to develop things that may be more dangerous than others. Um, there are, of course, situations that even as adults, we may not even know is dangerous. It may not even be dangerous physically, but it may be dangerous psychologically or emotionally. Like, you know, what effects does a predator or con artist that can emotionally manipulate have on you? So if you're smart and you're savvy, you sometimes can prevent, but some of their people are really good, you know, and their people can fool and can lie and be duplicitous. So that comes with experience as we develop experiences or before we make a move, we check with someone that we trust. You know, so we adults have developed all kinds of mechanisms and, uh, and tools to, and instruments to deal with situations and not allow stress to come into play. But it's inevitable that a person is going to face, it's inevitable that we are going to definitely face situations that you cannot prepare for. This can be surprises that you simply do not know how to prepare for because you weren't expecting it, or it's due to situations that are completely out of our control. And that's when what happens is the body goes into a type of, um, let's, let's just use an example like allergic reaction, just like someone may have allergies. So the body goes into hyper mode, to protect itself, what happens is when there's a stressful situation, the body will tense up and we will um, become somewhat uh, lost or disoriented, as I said, or even demoralized. You know? And I'm just using scenarios just to make the examples. God forbid anything should ever happen to anyone that's under my examples. I'm just using it just to make, make my point. You're walking late at night. You hear footsteps behind you. You know, what do you do? You weren't ready for it, you didn't expect it, etc. So, I'm talking about natural, not, when you're not trained, you panic, you panic. Maybe nothing to panic about, but there's a certain fright that sets in and often you make mistakes as a result because you don't think straight, you don't know what to do next. That's just a small example, and there's other examples. Now, this has nothing to do with our fault. This due to do with circumstances that, are, that have overwhelmed us that we were not ready for. And obviously you can't prepare for everything. But what happens is the body goes into a type, the body and I would say even the mind and the heart all go into a type of uh, emergency uh, state. And when you're not trained, what happens is the body and the emotions and your mind will lose sight, like I mentioned with the drowning victim, and you'll do things that are not rational. You may do things that are even destructive. You know? um, whereas, as we'll soon discuss, what you can do to counter that so stress really basically think of it as a bodily I would say it 's a psychosomatic that has physical and emotional and cognitive responses to an unnatural situation and each of us will react differently, but we won't react normally because it 's not a normal situation and a normal situation i 'm sorry an abnormal situation is going to automatically create abnormal reactions. The question is now whether these ab- these abnormal reactions are ones that we can refine and do things about so we should be able to take more control over it. And that's where we have the capacity to develop different methodologies. But it's important to understand exactly what I just said here, that there's a natural state we're in where we feel safe and comfortable, with not at home or with people we trust or environments we trust, that we know what to do. You know how to maneuver through that because it's comfortable. Then there's situations that are not comfortable. Now, that doesn't mean every uncomfortable situation will turn into a dangerous situation or something you should stress over, but it's definitely we're not like a fish in water. We're not comfortable there. And what will happen then is we will react as an uncomfortable person reacts. Now, here are the few factors that are critical to to take into account. What does it mean to be calm? Let's talk about calm. It's always good to, by contrast, you want to talk about lack of calm, um, being panicky or unhinged, as I mentioned, or other ways that we lose ourselves. So let's talk about what is the calm state. A calm state, really, based on what I'm saying, is essentially when you feel that you belong, you feel comfortable. Exactly, I used the example of a fish in water. A fish is comfortable in water. Take the fish out of the water, the fish will start thrashing about because it's not its natural environment. Same thing with us. We're comfortable when we're breathing, our heart is beating, and we're healthy people. What happens, God forbid, a person suddenly loses oxygen and is unable to breathe? We get, we get panicky. Like, what's happening? Again, no one should know of this. So the natural state, when you say calm, is basically where you feel your sense of belonging. You feel a sense of seamlessness. As a matter of fact, as I mentioned many times, health doesn't feel like anything. Someone will say, what does it feel like to be healthy? If you're able to describe a sensation, you probably need a doctor. Because health is not supposed to feel like anything. Breathing should just be smooth and seamless and invisible. Health is invisible. It's a healthy energy flowing through your body without any thuds and dull or sharp uh, sensations. It's just the way it is. If you're right now, I don't know where you're at, but let's assume everybody here is feeling very good. So what does it feel like? What's your left foot feel like right now? Before I mention it, you probably didn't even notice It's there because you don't feel anything. If it's a healthy foot, you're not going to feel anything. And the same thing with the rest of the body. Things are flowing smoothly. You know, you think about it, you start thinking, oh yeah, I'm breathing. Does anyone know, do you know how many times you breathe every minute? An average person takes 18 breaths. Did you ever think of that? It's so seamless we don't even know, which is, of course, the gift, the blessing. You go, God forbid, to a hospital. You see someone struggling to breathe, they need a respirator or something else to help them breathe. You realize, oh, wow. It's a pretty big miracle to breathe. So the calmness is a result, the serenity is a result of belonging. To put it in a little more uh, psychological terms, it's where the subject and the object melt into one and you're not conscious of yourself. You know, you're reading a book, for example, and you're immersed in this book. You're uh, absorbed to the point you don't even realize you're turning pages. You don't even realize it's a book. You can actually feel the suspense of the book. You can cry, you can laugh, you can be frightened. And you think about, what do you mean, you're just reading a book. Someone walks into the room, they see you're laughing, they see you're crying. Why are you crying? You're just reading a book. Because the book has become so one with you, that you're like in the scene, as if you're living it. That's what a good author can do. What's happening, the subject and the object, meaning you, the subject, and the object of the book, have become one to the point what sometimes is called in the zone, to the point you can't even distinguish between the two. It's a tremendous feeling in a positive way when you're in that place. As a writer, I can tell you, and I'm sure the same thing is with musicians and with people who are developing any projects. When you're in the zone, there's a certain peacefulness because you're not thinking about yourself, you're not thinking. Sometimes you can be up all night and realize, you know, wow, it's already the morning. I don't even realize how tired I was, how hungry I am. These are moments when you're in the moment. You're in the zone. You're completely absorbed. Healthy love is an expression of that. When you're with someone you love and you're really completely in the moment or in the time, you don't, it's not a whole experience like you're watching yourself or conscious of yourself. So you could basically say, here's the formula. Okay, Object and subject are joined together in a state where you're not self-conscious about it equals a calm, an inner calm, an inner peace, an inner state of serenity. The more conscious you become, the less serenity there is because you start asking yourself, do I look right? Am I here? Am I not here? What is the other person thinking about me? You don't have that when the subject and object join together because you don't have self-consciousness. Now you look at healthy young little children, as I said, healthy, not been hurt in any way. They have no self-consciousness. You ever see a child that's self-conscious? Before parents... Impose it on them, or, or subject them to it. Children crawl around. I, uh, you know, thank God I have today grandchildren. As a grandchild, as a grandparent, you have more time to watch and I observe, and I see this this, this um, free abandon. There's just exploring everything without a shred of self consciousness. Don't don't care what people think. You know, will crawl. As a matter of fact, you have to actually run around this baby because who knows what they can do? Stick their hands in the wrong places could be dangerous. But on the other hand, the good side of it is they're not self-conscious. They're just exploring the world in this adventurous, exciting way. And sometimes it's very envious to just be able to be in a place like that because they're totally comfortable. However, should a parent or an educator or any adult start yelling at the child? So, okay, one time, fine. But continuously yell, what will the child start doing? You'll start, they'll start repressing themselves. From exploring, they'll say, "Oh, who knows what someone's going to say about it?" You know, I'll be judged. I'll be criticized. I'll be punished. What's happening here, right there, before our very eyes? If you're able to look at this in a close-up, and let's say they you know a um, what do we call it, you know like they do a uh, uh, they do a series of pictures of a um, motion pictures, and you put them into a to one set that you could see something evolve. So you'd see how an innocent child, completely non-self-conscious and completely um, comfortable, suddenly becomes uncomfortable. And that child, in that type of environment, will continuously become start second-guessing themselves, become more and more self-conscious. If the parents are loving parents and nurturing parents and validating, they will validate the child's exploration and self-confidence, and that child will grow up to be someone that is pretty fearless. In a good way. I don't mean fearless in a crazy, reckless way, but fearless in the sense that they don't second guess. They have a healthy sense of confidence. Now, obviously, that also needs to be measured. Everyone needs humility, but they don't have that constant, am I being accepted? Do I have to please people? They don't become pleasers. They have a certain sense of self, and you know that they're at peace with themselves. I've seen people like this in my life, not many. But I've seen, and you could tell immediately, you could see a person just comfortable in their own skin. You get the concept. And some people are just not. And it's not a critique, because most people not comfortable in their own skin is not due to their own fault. It's because they were made uncomfortable. And And they're now a product of that. But that doesn't mean you can't reverse it. So what is calm, then, is a state of belonging, a state of feeling that you are... Belong, comfortable, um, and thus nurtured. You know, we go to uh, you go swimming, you go to the beach, you go underwater. There's a certain calm, because it's almost a recreation of the nine months that we spent in the submerged, in embryonic fluids in our mother's womb. That's not to be underestimated. The nine first months of your life, before you became an independent child, but from moment of conception, developing into a fetus, nine months. You were completely submerged in another human being. Everything was taken care of. What you ate, what you drank, what you breathed, everything. Completely protected. Now, God forbid, unless a mother is taking drugs or doing other unhealthy things, most children will have that gift. And even if the mother is psychologically screwed up and will be later abusive, but the nine months, God protects the child Even from an unhealthy mother. Again, except if she does things that are literally unhealthy. So it's interesting. We begin our lives, and the Kabbalists, the mystics, actually talk a lot about this: how we begin our lives submerged, like literally like a fish in water, literally. And that's why we begin with a fighting chance that we enter the hostile world, and the umbilical cord will be cut and more than once in life, once figure, physically, the other times figuratively, hopefully, you will have been empowered with an arsenal of a calm state of serenity that began at the beginning of your life. As a matter of fact, according to the Medrash, some of the sages, the sages, they say that existence itself, the universe, began completely submerged in water, and it was only afterwards where water and land were separated. Even from the point of view of the Big Bang, That was also the case. Everything was one soup of gases before it exploded and began to become a shape into the universe as we understand it today, into a many multifaceted. So there's something to be said about that state of inner unity or inner seamlessness, and that is when every time we feel calm in our lives, in a sense, we're going back like that to that natural space. When you're comfortable with somebody, what's really making you comfortable with them? Besides the fact that you trust them, What makes you comfortable is that you feel that you belong, that you feel you're not being judged. There's a lot of action going on in New York today. This is very stressful to me, all these New York sounds. I know you get used to it, right? Um, But you're going to see, I'm going to try to um, compose myself and make sure to demonstrate calm amidst New York's uh, emergency vehicles. Uh, Okay, that was a little uh, aside. So... So when you're, when you're comfortable with someone, if you, can, if you can analyze, evaluate the anatomy of it, it means there's a, a, a comfort with a, a trust where you know, as I said, as soon as someone starts judging you, you know, you can see right away, you ever see people, you meet somebody, you right away see in their eyes, they may not criticize you right away, but with their eyes, they're already giving you a look over and you're ready to hear stuff. You're not comfortable around people like that because they're projecting their own c- garbage on you. And it doesn't mean you're, you're uh, necessarily vulnerable to it, but it's not comfortable. Whereas you see some people, they just look at pe- you with kindness. And I'm not even talking now love, per se, just, uh, just a certain compassion and kindness, a natural, um, a natural uh, reaction of respect, dignity. You know very well when your dignity is being respected and when it's not. We all are able to tell. Some people, unfortunately, think that they deserve to be abused and therefore not surprised if someone uh, assaults their dignity. But that still doesn't mean that they feel good about it. And many absolutely are insulted because we deserve that right. So where do we get that from? We get it from because it's our natural birthright. As I said, nine months in the womb. And the natural, the natural state of the soul. I'm introducing the soul here now. The natural state of the human soul is comfortable. That's why children are comfortable until they're told to be not comfortable. It's a fact. Again, I'm not talking about extenuating circumstances or something. I'm talking about overall that's the way it is. So really our natural state is calm and our natural state is serenity and natural state is seamlessness and lack of self-consciousness. So what happened? What happened was the natural state was upset, was disturbed by something and usually it begins in our homes and then it could be in our schools, the early age, then in our environments, and in the social settings. As we grow older, as many people will tell you, as I get older, I get more and more cynical because I see that most people are parasites or in it only for themselves, selfish. And yes, they may be giving if they get something in return. But I began my life feeling I could trust everybody. And now I'm at a point where I feel I can't trust anybody. You ever hear such, uh, familiar such lines? I don't know where you're at. Some people are in between and still moving. But usually that's the trajectory. Which, of course, is quite disturbing. Because, and if you say to someone, how could you, you know, it's quite depressing. They say, yeah, but it's realistic. I was once idealistic. I thought people, like, really were better people. Now that I came to realize, my best friend screwed me at work. This one came a few dollars. This one for a promotion. And, you know, the competitive dog eats dog world. And it's a rat race and all the other uh, cliches and bumper stickers or whatever you want to call it. And most of us then develop a certain jaded attitude. Maybe we retain some of our idealism and some of our hope, but we become very wary because you meet people and you don't know who you're talking to. You know, Especially people will tell you, I was in love with someone. I and mean, we were deeply in love and I thought it was mutual and everything was work- growing great. And then one day, goodbye. Complete surprise. Betrayed. Abandoned. I can't believe it. I thought I knew the person. And what do you think that does to you? It, makes, it reinforces the attitude that you really, I don't know who I could trust. So hopefully you don't completely lose your trust because then you close off the door of finding the right person. But it's natural. That's how we're going to react. But all these are not natural experiences. That's why I elaborated so much earlier by saying you need to know what the natural human being is like. When I hear someone tells me, they will never find love in their lives. Or they have given up because they can't trust anyone, etc., etc. And they tell you why. Because everything they've gone through, you want to cry. Not just because that happened, but because the person no longer believes in themselves. They don't believe that they have the right and deserve to be loved. And all these negative experiences have now defined who you are. And this is the part that I, that's critical to know. You are not the sum of your experiences. You're not a product of your circumstances. You are who you are. Things may have happened to you, but those things did not change you. Unfortunately, most of us do change our sense, sense of identity based on life experiences because we don't have an alternative. So, you know, I'm, I'm giving you many, not, not imaginary, very real conversations I've had with, I would say, thousands of people by now of one form or another in this context. Okay, so I, so I say, but then there's the identity that you really are, you're not aware of. Yeah, but I'm only aware, this is the response, I'm aware of what I know, I'm aware of. I'm aware of what my experiences are. My experiences have been overall negative. And that's all I have. So why are you telling me I don't have an alternative? So then, of course, my response is, learn more about yourself. Find out what your soul is like. You know, and say, well, you know, I am now too late for me. The storm has already struck. I can't go build my ship anymore, like I mentioned before. And the answer is, that's not true. No matter what's happened in your life, you, you still have a soul. There's a very powerful prayer. I've cited it the last few weeks, and I want to cite it again. I just find it to be extremely empowering. Every morning, the, the, the prayer service, the chakra service, right, very early, right in the morning, the first prayer is, I thank you for returning my soul to me. You know, simple prayers that sound simple, but as you'll see in a moment, extremely profound, and these go back thousands of years. So there's some time-tested element to this. Then a few lines later in the prayer we say, this soul that you've given me, talking to God, is tahirihi, is pure. And then it continues. You've created it, you've shaped it, you've infused it within me, and you protect it. I just want to talk about those two, those, uh, that short prayer. In other words, firstly, there's a soul inside of you, and secondly, that soul is pure. And you say it every day. You could say, you know what, it was pure when I was one years old. Not today. Today it's no longer pure. I've defiled it many times, and many people have defiled it, and many people have heard it, but it continues to say it. Why? Because the soul is not impacted by your life experiences. I'm not suggesting life experiences are not important, and they're not, of course they're part of your life, part of your history, but it's not your identity. And you'll see this as a rule, and I would challenge anyone to show me otherwise. The people that maintain the deepest element of serenity and calm and stress are people who are extremely comfortable with their soul. And no matter what happens around them, that is never shaken. That doesn't mean they don't have stressful situations. That means they have something else going for them that is stronger than anything else that's happening. Like the roots of the tree. They have those profound roots. Now, interesting, Viktor Frankl, in his whole logotherapy, he developed... The idea is actually before World War II, before the Holocaust. But it was all verified if you read his book, Man's Search of Meaning. What does he say, basically? That the deepest thing in life is the search for meaning. And the people who have meaning in their lives, even if they go through the harshest experiences, what does he say? If there's a why, you can deal with any what. I think something like that. And he he studied. he He studied Jews in the concentration camps that were inmates near him. Those that were believers and those that were not believers, or at least thought they were not believers. Those that felt life has deeper meaning and those that felt life has no meaning. And it became very clear, those that had the meaning did not suffer less. They also lost husbands and wives and children and parents and grandparents in the most horrific way. But they had an additional thing in their arsenal called a, a deep belief in the meaning of life and the purpose of life and the higher purpose of life. So the suffering was there, equal to others, but they had an additional tool. And that's a key thing. I've heard this from many times, many people say, you hear this com- very common statement, if that person suffered like I would, they also wouldn't have been able to handle it. You know? No one has suffered like I have. No one could understand me because my experiences are worse than anyone's. Now, I'm not minimizing anyone's horrible experiences, but don't ever think it has anything to do with anything like that. There are people who may suffer even more than you And are able to, not they suffer less, but they have tools to counter it. So that statement that says, if someone suffered like I did, they'd be the same way, completely distraught or completely overwhelmed like me, that's not true at all. It is not true. And you see it, you see it. The Holocaust doesn't get worse than that. And you see it all the time. That you could have two people in exactly the same situation, and one person is more resilient than the other. Based on what? So there is wiring. We'll talk about that in a bit. But it's not so much the wiring. It's much more nurture, much more what you can do about it. I always, you know, I'll use this story because it just uh, captures it very well. Um, the, the, the sixth Chabad Rebbe, his name was Rebbe Yosef Yitzchak, he lived in the harshest times in the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union. This was under Stalin. No, Joseph Stalin. Joseph Stalin even though we don't like to compare um uh i don't guess animals or whatever you want to call them uh, to but he was a good competition to his co partner in, uh that wasn't his partner was his uh um hitler in germany and he had a passion to kill jews as well and uh and he did no one even knows the numbers. The Germans were meticulous with numbers. The Russians were not. But anyway, what he did was, when he came to power in the 20s, basically began to eradicate or try to eradicate every semblance of Judaism, Jewish life in the country. Now you have to remember, some say there were over 10 million Jews in the Soviet Union in the early part of the 20th century. No one really knows the numbers. So it was not a small matter. It was like someone deciding to, God forbid, do that in the United States. United States has five and a half million Jews. so you know. And, um, and it, was, it was tough. It was very tough times. Now, long story short, he was arrested for what they called counter-revolutionary activity because he was doing everything possible to preserve Judaism. They closed down synagogues, or they left them open, but they had informers who were constantly arresting people and killing people, shooting people. There was no due process. You know. They closed down mikvahs. They closed down kosher. They closed down you know, everything, circumcision. The whole Jewish life, traditions that were so part of Jewish life, they tried in any way possible to eradicate. He went to war against that, not in a overt way, by maintaining his commitment and encouraging others. They called that counter-revolutionary. They arrested him. Now, arrest there was not exactly you hire a lawyer and uh, you get out if you're innocent. There was no such thing as a defense attorney. It was, only, it was a kangaroo court set up completely only prosecution. And you're completely at their mercy. Now, this Rebbe wrote, actually, he wrote a diary, which he called Tractate from Hell. Mesech to that's what he called it. And he described the torture and described what he went through and all. And in his mind, he said, the day he entered prison, and he said to himself that I made a resolution that I will, but no way will I cooperate with them, and whatever happens, happens, but I will not lose my dignity and give up my own choices, Because of them. And he insisted that they let him keep his talis and tefillin. And even though he was fluent in Russian, he spoke only Yiddish. Mind you, some of his captors, his main captors, were Jews. They were called the Yifseks. These were called the Jewish communists. They were bigger anti-Semites than all the non-Jews. And as a matter of fact, some of them had grandfathers who were Hasidim of this man, Rabbi's grandfather. And there's a very interesting, well, interesting is a weird word here, but very fascinating interactions. I want to share one main one. He, as I said, refused to cooperate. So one of his captors, who's Jewish, his name was um, Lulov, said to him, in Yiddish. He put a gun to the Rebbe's head and said, Rebbe, in Yiddish, he said to him, this uh, object here has made many people cooperate. Many a man cooperate. And the Rebbe responded to him, this toy in Yiddish Tzatzke can frighten someone that has one world and many gods but not someone who has one god and many worlds or one god and two worlds. So Lulu became so enraged, he said to him, yes, we will see who will prevail over whom. And the Rebbe said, yeah, we will see. What happened was, of course, all these captives, they ended up being shot because nobody was loyal to anybody. A little of a shot within a few weeks after that. The Rebbe came out of prison, miraculously. Actually, came to the United States, 1940. I don't think I'd be sitting here today, or not for this man. And um, and I think about this story many times, because you see it, one second, a gun to his head. He's not exactly in a place where uh, he has friends. He could have killed him. He was, not, he was not exactly embracing death. But... He was a man that was free because nothing could frighten him. Why? Because he had a soul. You can take my body, but you can't take my soul. You know, a person who has only one world and many gods, that's it. You take away this world, nothing left. But someone that has diversified, you want to use an investment language, the eggs in many different baskets, so you take away one basket, I have another world. Not that I want to go there, but I'm not going to be frightened. This is not the end. And I can tell you I have no question in my mind that the Jews that marched to gas chambers and some of them singing songs of I have complete faith in God or saying Kaddish or saying Shema or other prayers, they were not insane because you could say, where's God in this God forsaken place? God completely abandoned the Jews. They were subject to the worst in dehumanization besides death. I mean, if you just think about how it makes your blood boil and think about it if we were there 70 years ago, we'd all be there. And yet, they proclaimed their faith not because they were delusional, because they were saying a major statement. You can take our bodies, but you can't take our souls. You can take our lives, but you can't take our faith. We will prevail. And if it won't be us, it'll be our children. And if it won't be our children, it'll be our grandchildren. I'm using this as a very important example. I'll I'll bring it back to our discussion in a moment. And when you go today to Berlin and you see, go to the Brandenburg Gate where Hitler would stand with his hundreds of thousands of legions. We have images, videos. Go and find Chanukah. Tell me what you see where Hitler stood. There's a Chanukah menorah. And the Christmas tree is all the way to the right. And you'll ask the rabbi how they pulled that off. He'll say he convinced the curator that for aesthetic purposes... It looks nice to have the menorah in the center and two trees to the right and the left, where Hitler stood. And Hitler's uh, men, the Nazis, hide their identities, and their children and grandchildren don't want you to know who their grandfathers were. And there are Jews walking in Berlin today with tzitzit, with kippot, women lighting candles, Shabbat observed. So you ask, yes, six million were taken, but who prevailed? The obituaries they wrote did not get fulfilled. We're here. And you see it in the former Soviet Union elsewhere. To me, these are not just nice stories. These are lessons, psychological lessons, that you can derive tremendous power from. You know why? Because these people were not defined by their circumstances. They never allowed, they suffered, but did not become sufferers. And to apply back to our discussion on far less stress that we have, because our biggest stresses, unfortunately, could be health issues and others, and I'm not minimizing it. It's exactly the same formula. It's what you have inside you before the stress strikes, and even when the stress strikes, that will define who you are. And if you don't have that, now's the time to start building it, because it's never too late. We all have it, as I said, our birthright. We have a serene, natural calm inside our soul. The problem is it could be completely trapped and locked away, and the rest of you has developed a new personality that gets stressed out. So you have to know, firstly, that that's not the real you. And you say, how, do I, how can I prove it? You know what? Let's say I can't prove it. But I think it would be nicer to believe that about yourself than just to think you're just one big, one big neurotic, stressed out, uh, what do we call it? Uh, so even if, secondly, I could prove it. Because, every, because I've seen with my own eyes how people have been able to access that. But you have to believe in yourself and believe that you once had that, or let's put it this way, you once a child that had that and accessed it, and may have gone undercover because you've been hurt. Because people have convinced you that you don't have that natural, peaceful place. But you do. And every morning you say it and reinforce it, that the soul you've returned to me is Pure. Yes, that pure soul is now packaged inside of a body and it's packaged inside of life experiences and a lot of stressful situations, but that pure part of you is there for you to access. You know the eye of a tornado, right? They say an eye of a tornado is a very calm place. There are people, and I include myself, I'm not here to toot my horn, but I include myself, that when there's extreme stress and and, and, um, anxiety, are able to access a certain calm place that is able to create a tremendous amount of focus. I don't know if you've ever met people like that. Many get caught up in the winds and become part of the problem. But there are those, and look at it like, you know, commander-in-chiefs. They cannot afford to panic because they have lives at stake that they have to protect. So there's an inner calm that we all have within us. This doesn't mean the situation is uh, peaceful. You obviously have to come up with a strategy to deal with it. But you go into a place where you're composed and you say, okay, here's where we are. There's a fire burning. There's real danger. Let's figure this out. And this does not require miraculous intervention. It requires you being able to reach into a place that's within yourself that has that power. Now, am I wishing upon anyone that we need to access that? I wish, no. I wish we'd all have peaceful situations day and night, 24-7, and you wouldn't need to access it. But I do not believe that life can, can promise that. Life is going to cause throw curveballs. Hopefully the minimal amount. But everyone's going to deal with challenges. It's unlikely that a person's going to live 80, 90 years and not experience a death in their lives of a parent, of a loved one. You know, hopefully, as I said, it's from people older than us and not, God forbid, younger. But it's inevitable. That's the way life is as it stands right now. So what, so what really will distinguish the... the, the men from the boys or the women from the girls, if you wish, is ultimately that, uh, the, the knowledge and the awareness of that dimension within you, which is called your soul. You say, I know nothing about your soul. So right now is the time to start learning about it. And as you learn about it, you become more aware of it. Because your soul is beating inside of you as we speak, just like your heart is beating inside of you. You have to just know how to recognize it. As a matter of fact, I will even tell you this, anxiety is actually your soul telling you there's something wrong. Just like your body tells you through pain there's a problem, the soul tells you there's a problem, that the soul is not being fed when you have anxiety. It's the language of the soul. I don't want to sound morbid, but dead people don't have anxiety. Live people have anxiety because they're alive, and something is off, so you feel anxious. Something is misaligned. But you can realign... And the first step is you have to learn about your soul. Absolutely. If you're in a very deep, stressful situation, as some people are, it's even more important because that's the only thing that will give you some peace. You're not going to find peace from the material world or from uh, doctors because they'll tell you, you know what, we can't do anything. Let's just accept it. That's from a medical point of view. But the resilience of the soul... ...is something that doctors cannot talk about... ...except some doctors do, they know. You remember that book by uh, Oliver Sacks... ...it was later turned into a film called Awakenings. Anybody read it or seen it? Nobody? Okay. It's a very interesting scene there. Well, I've thought about it many times. So Oliver Sacks was this doctor, the psychiatrist... ...who, um, I don't know... ...he would gravitate to all these weird uh, psychiatric uh, conditions... He wrote a book called my the, the wife that mis, uh, the, the, that mistook her husband for a hat. I know it sounds strange, but he dealt with a lot of these different strange situations now in the twenties or thirties some virus struck a community here in the united states i 'm not sure which city you remember anyway a virus struck a community, and people in their young in their uh, in their twenties suddenly became um, catatonic alive, their hearts beating, they're breathing but frozen like, like that exactly the way they were some were frozen like this sitting. and whatever they could try they could not get them awake and they were all in this ward because at some point they realized the virus has struck 20, 30, 40 people and that was that, Dr. Sachs decided to look into it he served there in the, that, that ward And one day by accident, somebody for some reason threw a ball, threw a ball in the room. And one of these catatonic patients picked up his hand reflexively and grabbed the ball. First time that person moved in 20 years, 15 years. Okay, he saw that, so he decided to throw another ball. And another person did the same. So he realized there's something going on here the ball throwing is causing them to a natural reflex, which means there's some consciousness going on. They had to be fed and everything, because there was no movement, and they had to be taken care of, but they they were clearly alive. So he realized that there's something going on, so he decided, let's figure out, and started experimenting with different medications to see if he can get something going in their neurological system. And yes, he found the right medication... He um, administered it to one of the patients and the person came out of the catatonic state completely, as of completely normal. And they started administering to other patients and the same effect. Now, of course, they had to be kept under observation because no one knew if the medication would last, etc. And also they were completely disoriented. These were people now living in the 1960s who grew up in the 20s and the 30s. Anyway, they took them on a field trip to jazz music from the 20s because that was the only thing they recognized. I'm not going to go through the whole story. It's a fascinating story. But there's a scene there. This first patient, obviously, unfortunately, the end of the story is not so happy. The medication did not last, and they needed higher dosages, and then it it caused the tics and other side effects. Ultimately, they had to stop the medication for all of them. They all went back to their catatonic state. But the first patient, you know, they all wanted to behave like free people, but they couldn't because they saw there were side effects. So one of them was to go to the cafeteria and he met this woman who would come visit her father who was in a who was in a vegetable state, a coma. And they yeah, I guess they started having some romantic connection. He was the patient. And but then at the end of the end of the story is where he finally cannot it'd be the last time he would see her. It's a very moving scene. So they meet in the cafeteria and he has all these things and he's trying to protect you know, he's trying to hide it from her. And he tells her this will be the last time we'll see each other because he's going to be they are taking him off the medication. And, uh, and she's, you know, she's telling him about, you know, something. I've been coming, reading a book to my father, but he's in this vegetable state. He's in a coma, already 10 years, and I don't think anything is there. I don't know. I'm going to stop reading to him. So he says, this guy who was in a coma, who was himself in a catatonic state for over 20 years, says to her, no, no, no. You continue reading. He hears you. He hears you. And it's a, it's a very powerful, to me at least, um, scene. Why? Because we don't know what's going on in another person's life. How do we know? You know, special children, Down syndrome or others. What do we know? And it's so easy to sign off, to write somebody off because they're not behaving the way you think they should behave. What do, you, what do we know about the depths and the mysteries of the human soul? Like the guy that used to come visit his wife with Alzheimer's, and she was losing. She forgot. She was forgetting things. And she forgot this person already. She didn't even remember her own husband anymore. How sad!" But he'd continue visiting her. The nurse said, "Mister so and so, you know, your wife doesn't recognize you more. You don't need to come anymore." He says, "Yeah, but I recognize her." You know. So the matters of the soul are mysteries that we should never think. You know, what do we know? We don't even know about the mind. Ask the greatest neurologist on earth. Ask them, what percent do they they, uh, estimate we know about the human mind? The human mind is the size of my palm, a little larger than this palm. What do we know? If they tell you we know 5% about the mind, we'll be lucky. That's what they will say. I've asked. The mind, let alone the human psyche and the soul. Now, medical advancements are tremendous. Longevity, age expectancy, life expectancy, and so on not taken away from that. But we know so little about this little human being called the five, six foot frame human, 100, 120, 130 pounds, I'm not gonna go higher than that. What do we know? We know more about outer space, millions of miles away, than we know about this little creature here, right? sitting right here in this chair, meaning all of us. The soul is an unfathomable and um, deep and mysterious place. But there are books that talk about the soul. You mentioned the Omer book. We're now in the 49 days between Passover and Shavuos. I wrote the Omer book, which dissects the seven times seven, 49 emotional attributes. And when you read it, you know, no one's ever seen an emotion. What does love look like? We don't know, but we, ha- we know what it feels like. And there's discipline, and there's compassion, and there's endurance, and there's humility, and there's bonding, and there's dignity. Seven emotions. And you follow this as we have an app this is a plug, but I'm not trying to plug it. I'm really trying to make a point. And that is that the soul is made up of parts. And just like a doctor will give you an X-ray or a CAT scan of your body and your mind and other parts of your body, there, is, there are books that give you an X-ray of your soul, a real X-ray. Again, it's not a physical X-ray. It's not made up of physical parts, but it's made up of spiritual parts. And there's ways you react to things. Love is a very real part of our lives. I would say love is probably more important than any other organ in the body, even though it's not an organ or limb, but it's a necessary component. So when you start recognizing and studying and recognizing what your soul is like, then you learn how to nurture it and nourish it, just like we nourish the body. And that is the greatest counterforce to any stress because the soul, as I said, is pure. The more you can rely on your soul, the more you can fall back on it, the less stress there will be, guaranteed. Guaranteed. And as I go back to the formula I said before. The more someone is where they feel they belong, and that's the soul of a human being, the, more, the less they will be impacted by the stresses of their lives. That again, I repeat, that does not mean you won't have stresses, and it does not mean that everything's going to be simple. But you have a, you've discovered deeper resources. And this is not, don't take my word for it or by faith. Try it out. I've seen it. I've seen it work with situations of people with very dire circumstances, very difficult. And it it absolutely works. And it makes total sense because what you're doing is digging deeper and finding more resources. Those resources are what give you the power to counter any difficult situation. If you don't have those resources, then all you are subject is to what you have. And stress and anxiety will control your life. So the only solution is either you're going to numb yourself and self-medicate to the point you don't feel the stress, which is not obviously a real solution. That's just escape. Or you're going to dig deeper and find resources within yourself that are as powerful as the stress, if not more powerful. And it will counter it. And yes, you'll be able to say that this will frighten someone that has one world and and many gods, not someone who has one god and many worlds, many dimensions. Sadly, we live in a very materialistic universe that really... Um, seems to gravitate for relief to material pleasures, money, power, influence, sex, other physical pleasures and escapes that become somewhat of a, I guess, a uh, like an oasis, something that numbs and relieves our short-term, uh, short-term relief of our existential pain. But like anything, it lasts that long. You need another fix very quickly. And if you don't have those fixes, you're either going to suffer or you will, um, as I said, numb yourself. And there's another option, which is a more longer, shorter road, and that is to find within yourself a resource, which is your birthright and part of who you are, that actually is a source of calm and serenity. You actually can open up a reservoir that's ready inside of you and it will pour into your life inner calm and serenity. Now, it may sound crazy, it may sound, you know, miraculous. It's not, because it's there already. And if you look back in your life, you'll find scenarios where you probably have a taste of it. Especially, I go back to the child. Look at children. It's not, a, it's not sometimes. this is an empirical fact. You study children, you show me anyone that's under one years old that is stressful, unless they're living in a stressful home. Children don't have natural stress. They don't have natural anxiety. Again, except in circumstances that force it upon them. I would even say older than that. But by older than, they already start getting influenced by the forces around them. You know, like I told the story here, not a joke. A guy told me to come to this class. Him and his wife, they have a bunch of dogs and cats. One dog particularly was acting up. And they're, you know, they're well-to-do. And they have a veterinarian. But not only a veterinarian, today you also have dog psychologists. I'm not, I kid you not. So they put the dog on the couch, I guess. I don't know if it's a couch. The, the, the canine couch or whatever, figurative couch. And the, the psychologist, the dog psychologist, told them these words. I mean, I, I, when they told me, I, started, I burst out laughing. And they said, why are you laughing? We're crying. You know, okay, but then I couldn't control myself. The, the psychologist told them that the dog is exhibiting a lot of neurosis and clearly picking it up from them, because the dog on its own doesn't have neurosis, and they have to stop arguing and stop being so tense in the home. And they were like they're mortified. They said, "You're right. You're right. It's true. We do argue and all that. You know." So, so very, very healthy creatures, put the, and put them into an environment of un, of uh, stress. They're gonna get stressed. That's how it is. You ever go to a party and you can just feel from the top down, from the boss down, from the host down, rather. Stress, the waiters are stressed, everybody's, and they also get stressed. It's like the whole place is just a, a exercise in tension. And then you come to parties where you just feel comfort because the people on top are comfortable and spills over and it's a comfortable place to be. It's not difficult to pick up. Now, I know that reality is also some people happen to like, are addicted to stress. Like someone tells me, more than one person has told me, that when I go to a place that's too peaceful, I get nervous. Because I thrive on stress. And therefore, some people actually create situations crisis. You have this. You can see this in relationships, intense, in dating and so on. Some people need to create a crisis. You say, why are you creating a crisis? They're not even conscious of it at times because they're comfortable. That's what they, that became their comfort zone. It's like if you breathe toxic air for too long, it's the only air you want to breathe. And if someone brings fresh air, they say, that's not good for me. Because it you know, makes me cough, but because it gets so used to toxicity. So the point of the matter is, we become somebody that we're not. and I am ready to state with everything I know and experience that many of us are not who we re- are behaving, not who we really are. I'm not going to compare us to dogs, obviously. that's not my point. My point is the stresses of life and the f- circumstance of life have to find you. And that is the real tragedy, because it's not you. Bad enough, the things that have happened, but now that you yourself say I'm a product of that. Like I always point out when someone says, who are you? People give you their business card. Every time I always, and I say, but that's not you. That's what you do. So the smart ones will say, well, what I do is what i become. It's true. You become your job, but that's not who you are. Everybody knows that. But that's life. We become what we do. We become who, what our activities are about. And therefore, instead of it being the other way around, that your insides, who you are, should define what you do, what you do is define who you are. Now, it may not sound so terrible, but it becomes terrible when, especially, it's negative stuff. And that is what it comes down to. So, a key, key, in, in key place this plays itself out is in relationships. You, bring to, you project your uh, experiences into your relationships, what do you think happens? You're not who you should be. The other person is probably doing the same thing. And how could you really ever have find a soulmate that you could be at peace with and calm with when you yourself are not uh, calm with yourself, you're not at peace with yourself? Now, this doesn't mean we have to go to 20 years of therapy or 20 years of work. It just means you need to start asking yourself, maybe there's parts of me I don't know, maybe it's time to get to know myself. I know it sounds weird, but why not? If not now, when? You know? What are, you waiting, what are we waiting for? Now, I'm not suggesting we have no self-awareness. I'm not going to state that at all. I'm sure everybody has some self-awareness. The question is, how much? And uh, that's the thing. So the more you learn about your own soul, your own personality, and what you're made of, and it's a great opportunity right now, as I said, those 7 times seven forty-nine, Tremendous way to, to get a good assessment and evaluation of what you're made of. For example, some people are excellent givers. They really know how to give. They don't know when to stop giving. They lack discipline. And they can end up hurting people and killing people with love. Spoiling people. Then there are people opposite. Excellent at discipline, but they don't know how to be kind. They're very, very always frugal. uh, uh, Everything, discretion. They don't know how to let go and just give you giving. And then you go through other things. Some people are extremely determined and ambitious. (laughs) Excuse me, and they'll step on others in the process. Others are too humble, and they don't stand up for themselves. I'm just using some simplistic... But then there's an interaction of all of them. You need to have within love, you need discipline. Within discipline, you need love. Within ambition, you need humility. Within humility, you need ambition. You get the idea. So these 49 days that we're in right now is a period of personal refinement and character development, and above all, examining who you are. And not in general terms, I'm a good person, I'm a bad person. I, I'm a loving person, I'm a stingy person. That's some very broad, in detail, everything is in the detail. Say God's in the details, devil's in the details, whatever you wish to choose, which one. But the, everything's the details, it's not just general terms. And then you start getting to know yourself, just like when you have life experiences, I mentioned before, crisis can to reveal a lot about who you are, same thing as self-evaluation. And focus on that begins, to start saying, a, a portrait emerges. You know, here's a portrait of myself. I can use a lot more in, in reinforcement and strength in the area of loving, or I can use the opposite—more strength in the area of of uh, discipline, channeling instead of just giving, giving with discretion, as I mentioned, on and etc. etc. So, this, in my view, is somewhat of an overview of. Uh, I mean, it can't be exhaustive in this uh, time slot, but hopefully it's uh, enough to give you some food for thought, some feelings for thought, emotions for feeling as well. And there's plenty more where this comes from in the sense where you can go to our site, MeaningfulLife.com. There's a lot of resources. Just put in stress, anxiety. You'll find plenty. I have a whole chapter of fear and anxiety in my book, Toward a Meaningful Life. But I suggest the focus should be not on relieving fear and anxiety or stress, the opposite focusing on the strengths you have that automatically the more you can hold on to that immediately it will somewhat um, mitigate and somewhat weaken those negative those stressful forces because you have somewhere to turn and it could be through prayer and it could be through study and it could be through volunteering and doing good deeds all these things take your mind off yourself and and feed your soul's purpose and mission in this world because the more you are dedicated to a cause greater than yourself, the more your soul is fed. The more your soul is fed and nourished, the less stress affects you. Not the less stress you have, and not the less stressful experiences there are, but the less affects you. And that's critical. Just like they say on a plane, put on an oxygen mask first on yourself before on someone else, because if you're not strong, you're going to be very difficult for you to help somebody else who is in a stressful situation, whether it's health or other sorts. So, to conclude on a positive note, you all, each of you, each of us, has tremendous, tremendous arsenal reservoir of strengths and potential that lie in the heart of your soul and it's time to get to know it. The more you know it, the more powerful you become to the point where you have that, exactly that blessing of inner peace, what they call peace at the center. No matter what's happening, you have a certain place you can always go to that gives you some inner peace, and transcends all life experiences. So, um, I dedicate again the class to your, uh, your wife and mother, and Rufur Shlema, Rifka Batleya, and everybody should only, only have good news in all matters of health and physical, spiritual, emotional needs. And we are here every Wednesday, beginning around 8.30 p.m., on all your channels, Facebook, uh, YouTube, what else? A little Instagram? Okay. And uh, so please stay in touch. It's an honor for me and my whole team at the Meaningful Life Center to be part of your spiritual journey and intersect together, meaning we could all help each other uh, dealing with these challenges that I described today and as well as other issues in life which is what we're all about. And hopefully we can all clear up, uh, I should say uh, clear and harness the strengths that we have toward the positive ways. And please stay in touch. Good night, everybody. Good morning or good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. Until next week, thank you so much.